Britain feels broken, but how do we fix it? Westminster just doesn't seem to have the answers, but we have found some people who do. Join me, journalist Becca Hudson, and me, the former MP Ed Vasey, for How I'd Fix. From the price of a pint to the housing crisis, this is the show where we take an alternative look at the problems plaguing the nation. And hear practical solutions from those in the know. Catch new episodes of How I'd Fix wherever you get your podcasts. Rebuilding Britain starts here. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. So, I'm back, rested, recuperated, raring to go and indeed ready for action. And there's plenty to be getting on with as well. The climate doom mongers have been all over the place, warning of dire consequences and disasters unless we all stop going anywhere and stop eating anything that doesn't grow out of the ground. Apparently, it really has been peak catastrophizing over the last few days and hardly anyone is bothering to challenge the crazy narrative that we should all start shouting at people who don't ride bikes and want to have the odd hamburger every now and again. This morning, I'll be putting the world to rights in the usual way by pointing out the rather disagreeable facts, explaining why modelling should be discarded in favour of proper science and asking the right questions to the right people. After all, what's the point of having a brain if you don't use it? Up first, we're talking to our favourite member of the Labour Party, Brendan Chilton, about a whole host of stories ranging from the so-called climate emergency to the latest from the White Cliffs of Dover, which is that illegal migrants being put up in hotels will cost us 70 million quid this year alone. And that comes on top of the news that the storage of their dinghies has cost us half a million quid so far. Who on earth is running the Home Office? Is it the carry-on team? 0344 499 We'll also be finding out why the government has U-turned yet again over people returning to their places of work. If we're not careful, we're going to end up with a generation of hopelessly reclusive individuals with no social skills, no friends and no proper life outside their own homes. You fancy a sandwich? Well, I've got another meeting on Zoom for two o'clock, but I could probably squeeze in a cheese and tomato. Really? Great. Any chance of you going out for a while? I'm getting a bit sick of looking at you. Well, I like working from home. It really helps me with my work-life balance. Unbelievable, isn't it? We'll also be checking in with Ben Clapworthy from The Times on the travel news of the day and why the PCR testing situation for holidaymakers who are going abroad is such a shambles. If you've suffered at the hands of some of these unscrupulous testing companies, we'd love to hear from you. You probably saw yesterday piles and piles and piles of these PCR tests outside of pharmacies where people have put them unaware of the fact that they could be stolen, their data could be misused, presumably their DNA might be nicked, and they might even be COVID positive, might they? 0344-499-1000. Charlie Ray joins us as well with the news that Prince Andrew is now being sued by the woman in the USA who claims he sexually abused her when she was underage. Plus, Professor Carol Sikora is here with his take on the figures, the virus, where it's all going, and what we could be doing uh, this time next month. As ever, we need to hear from you, of course. What are you doing? What are you hearing? What are you being told? 0344-499-1000. Kevin O'Sullivan's here as well. Plus, LaDonna Harvey in from California to tell us about the worst brush fire the Californian state has ever seen in its entire history. It's all to do with you, you know. It's all your fault. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. Now, of course, on TV as well. It is, of course, Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, most of the newspapers this morning, you will see, have got a picture uh, on the front of a woman in Greece, a terrible uh, picture, really, uh, a place called Goves uh, on the Greek island of Eviar. The EU yesterday began a huge operation to tackle fires on the island. Well done, the EU. It's a bit late, isn't it? The place seems to be on fire. So 
I think maybe you should have started tackling them a little bit earlier. But, uh, of course, the problem we're being told is it's all down to us. It's all down to human beings. Uh, the climate is changing fast, rapidly, because of the fact that we all drive around in gas-guzzling cars. We all fly in planes. doesn't appear to have made much difference at all that uh, in the past year alone, hardly anybody's gone anywhere. That doesn't seem to have made any difference to the fires in Greece or the fires in California. So let us kick off this morning with Brendan Chilton, CEO of the Independent Business Network. First question to you, Brendan. What have you done to save the planet so far today? Mike, I'm afraid I've done bugger all. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, as long as you haven't had some kind of fry-up breakfast, because that will obviously hasten the rising of the sea levels, which will inevitably, you know, engulf us all before the end of our lives. I mean, I heard a guy on the radio yesterday saying, well, of course, uh, if sea levels rise by two metres, right, which is about the height of this studio, maybe higher, um, 650 million people will die. To which I thought, well, that's probably true. In the same way as if you said, if you drop a, a an atom bomb on Dover, you'll probably kill quite a lot of people. Doesn't mean it's going to happen, does it? Well, no, it doesn't. And as a resident of Kent, I do hope nobody does drop an atom bomb. <laughs> <laughs> and I have to apologise to all those people that are soon going to be living in Atlantis. Unfortunately, I did have bacon and eggs for breakfast this morning, so this isn't starting yeah. off Have well, you no it? shame? It's a shocking state of affairs and a terrible admission to make. But, I mean, it has been absolutely unbelievable. I was actually reading, uh, as most people clearly haven't done, some of this UN report, which apparently uh, has been written over the course of the last two, two or three years, it's 4,000 pages long in one passage of it right it actually says and this is a quote a direct quote that the accumulation of the planet's temperature going up by 1.5 degrees could happen but somewhere between now and never I kid you not that is what they say so it's actually now or never which means it might never happen well attached to all this Mike I mean if you were to read the newspapers and listen to the news in this country uh, you would think that we're not only responsible uh, for this as human beings but that only British people are responsible you know we're quite terrible over here and everything uh, but actually uh, one of the countries in the world the, the country that has reduced its carbon emissions carbon emissions the most in the world is actually the United Kingdom yes. uh, any other countries uh, in Europe including Germany uh, that haven't done anywhere near as well as we have. So on that front, we're doing well. Now, my concern with all this is, of course, we're all in for conservation. We should protect species. We should try and keep things clean and tidy, look after our oceans. I think everyone agrees on that. What I think we're going to have to examine at some point very soon in the future is where the cost of going green Mm. is going to land because we know where it's going to land. It's going to land in people's pockets, on their tax bills, on their travel bills, and on their home energy bills. And for ordinary working class people in this country, the costs are going to be enormous. And so if the government are going to take us down this road, they've got to ensure that ordinary working people do not suffer uh, as a result. Yes. Well, it was only last week, just before I took a couple of days off rather unwisely, and everything seems to have spun out of control in my absence, was when Boris Johnson's climate policy was apparently in chaos, according to people in Downing Street, because somebody worked out, actually, uh, that it was going to cost the working class people of this country an absolute fortune, and they couldn't afford it. And therefore, not only would the Tories lose faith with those particular people but they would stop voting for them in those red wall seats that they only just won i think i think that's quite right and i think this is actually going to become the next big issue uh, in this politics in this country because both main parties are really committed uh, to this agenda and to decarbonizing our economy further 
and to essentially making us completely carbon neutral, I think it's by 2050. Now, as we've just said, the costs of this are going to be enormous, not only on families yeah. and individuals, but also on family businesses. Uh, and I think once the, the principle of it, everyone is supportive of, I think, you know, no one wants to damage no, the planet. No, actually, sorry, I, can't okay. my head up. I, am not, I am not, because I'm not convinced that being carbon neutral in this country makes a jot of difference to the world anyway. Because, quite frankly, we're such a small part of whatever the problem is that it's like sort of saying to somebody who's got, you know, um, some kind of raging bubonic plague. I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to cut your toe off uh, and see if that helps. Well, it won't help, will it? But everybody convinced that if you cut your toe off, that'll be fine. Well, it won't be fine. Well, the, I think the, the element that you touched on there is quite true, that Britain doing this alone is really not going to make a blind bit of difference, no. especially got China, India, the United States and Russia, these massive countries uh, building new power stations and not really uh, doing their bit on this front. Now, there's a whole debate to be had around the extent to which we should be going to carbon neutral. And I must admit, I'm not entirely convinced we need to be going to carbon neutral. Mm. Uh, the question of improving efficiency and all this sort of stuff. Yeah, I'm all for that because I want to save money and see more people keep more of their money. Yeah. Uh, but I think the next big issue in our politics in this country is going to be when the cost of doing all this starts hitting home mm. uh, because our politicians are signed up to this. Most of the business leading world and most of the media are signed up to this as well but when the costs start hitting people and they see their energy bills rising they see the cost of their holiday or no one's been on holiday but when we are allowed to go on holiday the cost of our holidays rising uh, the cost of cars rising i think people will become very angry very very quickly and at the moment there's no alternative to the agenda that uh, no political party espousing an yeah. alternative uh, to what the main parties are advocating. But this is the problem, isn't it? Because nobody's really talking either about what it will cost. I mean, if you want to uh, make it appealing, for example, to have an electric car, make them cheaper. You know, if you want to convince me to buy an electric a Range Rover, make the electric Range Rover cheaper than the diesel Range Rover. At the moment, it's about 50% more expensive. So why would I bother? Exactly. And this is where I think our politicians are not really facing reality. The principle of it all sounds nice and glossy and a bit utopian, but the reality of it is something quite different. If you're going to have an electric car, you're going to need more electric charging points, which is going to be more investment on our motorway and road infrastructure systems. It's going to mean these things need to be built into new properties, which of course are going to drive the cost of properties up. And it's going to mean over time uh, that you know, the market will enable the price to come down. But certainly initially, these costs are going to be extremely high and out of reach of most ordinary people in this country. Uh, and that's where I think the politicians are going to come up with some difficulty when real the reality of their policies starts hitting people's pockets. And then I think we might see a slowdown of what the government is proposing and indeed what all the main parties in this country are supporting. Yeah, I've got a good idea, right? Uh, here's one first, my first step in saving the planet, right? The Guardian, uh, which is printed every single day apart from Sunday when they print an even worse newspaper called The Observer, um, says here, global climate crisis, inevitable, unprecedented and irreversible. Well, I'll tell you what, why don't you stop printing The Guardian altogether? And then that way you could save on the paper, right? You could save on all the machinery, all the electricity that they use. And that way, you know, we could be on our way to net zero um, in hardly any time at all. What do you think? I think it's a brilliant idea, eh? Well, I stopped reading The Guardian some time ago, Mike, even as a <laughs> Labour man. I think they, they've gone a bit far. Um, but the, the other uh, issue attached to all this as well, as we say, is the rest of the world. Now, the United Kingdom 
is is leading the way. If if you're supportive of this approach, the United Kingdom is leading the way. We've reduced. It's not making much difference in China, though, is it? It, this is precisely the point, Mike. If our, our country is going to continue to do this, then we can't do it alone. We need the government to be making the case around the world saying to other countries, you need to do it as well. And it's absolutely no use. Britain, we are, I think, as, a, as a, an economy, 0.8% of global GDP and our population is less than 1% of yeah. the world population. What we do here on this small island off the northwest coast of Europe is not going to make a massive difference. When China is building new coal-fired power stations, when America's continued to using energy at the rate at which it is, Russia's continuing to uh, export coal and gas uh, from its own country as well. Uh, these are big global issues. And, you know, Britain isn't the great superpower that it once was. We are a small island. And so we've got to be realistic about what we can achieve. Mm. If we continue to go down this road, costs are going to rise in this country for ordinary people and for businesses, while the rest of the world doesn't suffer those costs. Uh, and that's really not fair. And in the long term, we'll make this country a less desirable place to do business, a less desirable place to set up work, and live and grow old. Uh, and so our politicians have really got to address this in a question of fairness, not just in this country, but around the world. Yeah, exactly right. And also the United Nations, you know, it's hardly a paragon of virtue in any way, shape or form, wastes probably more energy uh, than any uh, international organisation anywhere uh, known to man. They've got fleets of Toyota Land Cruisers that drive around with UNHCR plastered all over them, uh, moving people from one place to another and calling themselves refugee rescuers. Well, it's not working very well because there's more refugees in the world now than there's ever been. You know, the, the, the building they operate in New York uh, is a complete and utter, you know, dinosaur filled with people who do absolutely nothing all day, paid for by different governments around the world, using air conditioning, which is killing the planet, using heating during the, during the winter, which is killing the planet. And also, they've been warning about this. They've been saying this uh, this weekend. Oh, we've been warning about this for 30 years. Yeah, but every single warning and every single prediction they've ever made hasn't come true. You know, they're worse than the COVID uh, maniacs. Well, this is the issue with... I think the environmentalist lobby, not just in this country, but around the world, they are so dramatic and so farcical in the language they use mm. that it turns most people off. Uh, I've, in preparation for coming on today, I've done a little bit of research. And yeah. the first warnings about catastrophic climate change were in the 60s. Uh, well, 80 years later, uh, sorry, uh, 60 years later, we're all still here mm. uh, and the world <laughs> hasn't come to it. <laughs> you know, yeah. and, and also I haven't, had to, I haven't had to move up like three flights uh, I live by the river uh, but the river's still where it was you know about 50 years ago you know thanks to uh, the yeah. Thames barrier thanks to the fact that it's tidal sometimes you can hardly see the water at all you know guess what that's because the tide comes in and out every day exactly and yes we have had this year some freak weather we've had fires in Greece well 200 years ago, there were massive fires in Greece. Right. And the, there's an account, if anyone that studied history, the Royal Navy, which was based at the time in Corfu, uh, were helping Greeks evacuate the mainland. Yeah. Uh, in Germany, the floods we've had, there's a little, uh, there's an image going around on the internet where that one little household, they've got sort of little lines where the floods were. Well, in 1840, I tell you, I wouldn't have liked to have been there because no. even with a rough duck and armbands, we no. probably would have been completely well, do you know what is um, also responsible for an awful lot of this flooding and fires is environmental policy. 
because certainly in America, anyone will tell you, we're talking to LaDonna Harvey later in California, and they did the same in Australia. They've stopped doing certain practices that they used to do, which prevented bushfires and brush fires from happening all over the place. They've now stopped all that. Uh, so now the fires can actually spread quicker, more wildly, uh, and, and, and do far more damage than they used to do. Because the things that they used to do, which was to set little fires, to set fire to certain habitats, have now been banned because they can't kill the animals. So instead, they wait until the animals get killed later. Same with the floods. Nobody dredges rivers anymore because it's thought to damage the uh, the heartland of the river and the environment that has loads of animals and worms in it, right? So each, each river that we have now is, is not as deep as it used to be. So flooding happens more often. Well, it goes to reason, doesn't it? If you raise the the, the seabed or the riverbed, the water got to go somewhere. It will yeah. only go up. Right. Um, and I think the whole debate, though, around this, uh, I think, has become so polarised and so really farcical, particularly from those who advocate that, you know, the world is doomed. Yeah. Actually, uh, we're making more progress than ever before. Uh, for humanity and for nature and for conservation and for protecting our oceans and natural world. And that's something that should actually be celebrated. Um, you know, poaching has collapsed. More and more animals in the sort of African continent that were near Not extinction the are no longer. <laughs> That's another story. Well, no, no, the media has, yeah. Plenty of poaching going on in the media. But listen, uh, stay where you are, Brendan. I'm going to come back to you because I've got lots more to talk to you about, particularly the latest migrant nonsense as well. This is the fastest growing radio station on the planet, of course. We're talking to Brendan Chilton from the Independent Business Network. This is Talk Radio across the UK, online, on DAB+, and on the Talk Radio app. The Independent Republic of Mike Gray on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. I'm back from a couple of days away and I tell you what, I feel brilliant. Absolutely fantastic. This is now the new me, I think. Every Friday and Monday, every so often I'll take it off and it'll be like having a little holiday. It'll save me a fortune as well. I won't have to go anywhere. I'll just have to go and hang out with the kids and the dog in Sussex. It'll be great. Absolutely fantastic. I feel like a new man, it has to be said. Brendan Chilton's here with us, CEO of the Independent Business Network. A couple of things to mention to you, Brendan. First of all, uh, the London waiting allowance has become a bit of a thing over the course of the last couple of days because people now who were told that they had to come back to the office, particularly civil servants, are now being told, actually, don't worry, you can just continue working from home, uh, do whatever you like, and we'll just keep paying you bucket loads of money. And indeed, even if you don't work in London, we'll still pay you the London waiting allowance. That's got to stop, hasn't it? It has completely got to stop. Um, If we want to get our cities and offices and, you know, working life back to normal in this country, people have got to be forced to go back to work. Uh, Not necessarily every day of the week, but for most of the week. And if people don't want to do that, the allowance that they are receiving, which is essentially to cover the extra costs of living and working in London, uh, should be taken away and given as a tax cut to people in this country. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right, because the working from home thing has to come to an end. Again, I've been hearing all these people bleating over the weekend about how great it is to work from home. It's not great. It's not great for the economy. It's not great, actually, for people individually, no matter how much they might think it is. And I don't think they should have that choice. I think if you want to opt to work from home and you have a job uh, that allows you to do that, fine. But what should be happening is that employers should be entitled to say to people, look, you need to be back in the office. I agree, Mike. And if you've signed a contract that says your place of work is the office or the factory or wherever it is, uh, that's your place of work. And the fact that you've got comfortable uh, working at home 
uh, for the past year or so uh, is neither here nor there. It's been an extraordinary period. We're now out of it and people need to return to their offices uh, because it's the, the sort of the life of the towns, especially around the country. For example, take a local authority building or take a bank. You know, a local authority can employ hundreds of people. A bank can employ dozens of people. If they're not in the town in their high street and at lunchtime going out and spending money on a coffee or a sandwich, the local businesses suffer, the suppliers suffer, unemployment goes up and it's a circle downwards of unemployment uh, and poverty and mm. we don't want to see that and so i totally agree with you and, and anyone who's suggesting this yes i would cut the allowance uh, for the like the london allowance or any other uh, urban allowances uh, for people that commute uh, and work in the cities uh, if they don't return to work in their offices. Mm, absolutely right. And well, let's finish up with the migrant crisis, which has seemingly gone from bad to worse uh, since I was last here on Thursday. Three stories that I saw over the weekend. One, we're paying apparently half a million quid a year to store the dinghies that these people come across the channel in just in case they might want them back. You're going, what? I mean, you know, apparently there's a rule with customs and excise that if you if you um, confiscate something from someone, you have to hold on to it for six months in case they want it returned. Well, I mean, just put a bullet in the in the dinghy and then they're all useless and then you don't have to pay to store them. Second story, uh, this morning we're told that, uh, that Pretty Patel's going to get a bill for 70 million quid for housing all of these migrants in hotels. And that's, again, going to be paid for by the taxpayer. And finally, the, 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 the top the lot, really, apparently hundreds of them have absconded from some hotels down on the south coast and nobody knows where they've gone <laughs> see mike this is what happens when you go away the country goes to <laughs> you need to stay it's you unbelievable though i mean you know it's, it's sort of coco the clown running in the home office or something you know it's a complete joke. And I think the people are actually starting to get really fed up with this now. Um, you know, destroy the diggies. Don't let me sit there storing them, paying for them. Right. And you're right. Just stick a knife point. in it, you know, if you haven't got a gun. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but you're, the, you're making the point, though, isn't it? It's us, the taxpayer, that have got to foot the bill for all this. Yeah. You know, incompetence and failures at the Home Office. Well, I'll tell you what, perhaps we should start having a bit of personal responsibility. I know the Home Secretary talks about this a lot. Instead of us, the taxpayer footing the bill for her cock-ups why doesn't she pay the bill personally yes uh opposed to us having to do it what a good idea because frankly i think most people in this country now mike are fed up with this we've got a border we should be policing it and be able to control it if the french aren't willing to cooperate fine we get our uh, lifeguards we get our naval patrol vessels and police vessels and when these migrant boats sail towards england we stop them turn them round and tow them back yes. it's very simple that's what need to start doing and if we do that we will have control of our borders and then we can have a fair immigration and asylum policy which isn't currently uh, being exploited yeah. as it is at the moment well, maybe maybe we get some government minister to tell the migrants to work from home and then they wouldn't be able to able to travel listen i'm willing to try anything brendan listen great to talk to you as ever thank you very much indeed brendan chilton ceo of the independent business network that's the plan isn't it Brilliant. So, uh, you know, p puncture all the boats, tell the migrants to work from home. Job done. Pretty Patel, you don't even need to be here anymore. I've solved it for you. This is Talk Radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
Good morning and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. I am back. I am refreshed. Uh, I could not tell you how much better I feel. I don't know why uh, I didn't do it before. Why did I not do it before? I was literally working all of last year. I took four days off to go to the Isle of Wight, uh, which wasn't so much as, as a rest, as a, as a punishment, really. Um, I came back not feeling particularly much better. But having taken just Friday and Monday off, I feel great. I guarantee you, if you're feeling stressed out, if you're feeling like you've had enough and you can't really get away because of the problems trying to find a cheap holiday to go somewhere without having to pay a fortune in testing and all the rest of it and having to you know board the dog and all the rest of it just take a couple of days off you'll feel much better for it i highly recommend it i have to say now uh, lots of you will probably be asking why is mike graham not talking about the a-level results well it's because i don't care about them i'm not planning on talking about them i don't think they're interesting uh, if you've got kids who are doing their a-levels that's great i'm very happy for you uh, i'm sure the made-up grades will be very very useful to them when they go out into the big wide world and everybody says actually uh, that doesn't mean a fact end you can't do anything with that because we know somebody just made it up for you so go away uh, and get yourself a job somewhere else thanks very much indeed instead we're going to talk to charles ray who is of course the former royal editor of the sun because it turns out uh, that things have gone from bad to worse in the old royal household not content with having to put up with uh, uh, the machinations from montecito california with harry and Meghan and their multiple books that they're going to be publishing about the queen and how awful the royal family are it now turns out uh, that virginia roberts um, who says that she was sexually assaulted by prince andrew when she was underage is now suing him uh, for sexually abusing her three times when she was 17 charles a very good morning to you um morning mate i mean this is pretty serious stuff isn't it devastating absolutely devastating and uh you can imagine you can only imagine what's happening at Balmoral this morning oh. uh, with this news. Uh, the poor old Queen sort of sitting there just with her head in her hands wondering what on earth could be possibly going on. Mm. Now, Virginia Roberts, who's now uh, Virginia Guffrey because she married, um, she has filed this suit in New York under the new uh, the New York Child Victims Act of, nine, of 2019, mm. uh, which allowed victims of child abuse, um, and she was under uh, 18 um, when the, these incidents happened, uh, a five-year window uh, to go to court. But there was, uh, in the law, it gave victims a one-off window to make a legal claim regardless of the time. That time runs out this Saturday, which mm. is why it went to the court yesterday. Now, I, I, I don't know how Andrew is going to face this um, th this civil suit, because if he goes to America uh, to appear in court, uh, what do you think the first question is going to be? Did you have sex with yeah. this girl? Right. Uh, uh, and if he doesn't go to America to appear in court, there is a chance he could be found guilty in absentia, yes. which will just set the whole ball rolling. Uh, personally, I'd like him to go, go to America because I'd, uh, the Americans have this wonderful system uh, of having uh, the perp walk, yes. where you you bring the accused through through a throng of journalists and people gathered by, and it it would be absolutely de devastating. I cannot imagine how this could possibly happen. That Andrew would go back to would go to the U.S. Uh, to face. Um, you know, face to face, this uh, the, these accusations. Mm. Well, there's no question, is there, Charlie? They could have made this a lot easier for himself Absolutely. by talking to the FBI in the first place. Because you remember the Emily Maitlis well, interview that he did on Newsnight when she said to him, "Will you talk to the FBI?" He said, "Well, I'll talk to my advisors, and if they think it's a good idea, I will do so." He clearly, I, he was clearly told it's not a good idea. You no, know, he was told, and he, but he told in that in that interview with Emily Maitlis that he would help as much as he possibly 
possibly can. And this lawsuit actually makes the point that he's done sod all. He's not done anything at all to answer any questions whatsoever. And he still was maintaining for a while, I don't know if he's still maintaining, he ne never actually met this girl, despite the fact there's a picture of him right. with his arm around her Which waist. he claims is a doctored picture. I'm not quite sure how, well, he, how he works that one out. His friends, and I'm assuming he was as well, he was claiming uh, that it was a doctored picture. And in fact, we had this ridiculous scenario of um, people actually saying it can't be him because his his he's got fatter fingers or the fingers in the picture were too fat for right. for him to be him but you know when once you open up the, the the picture because most most people show the picture of just andrew and the girl mm. when you open up that picture guess who's nearby Gillian Maxwell, yeah. where is she? In yeah. the pokey at the moment waiting to answer charges or sex charges Concerned with uh, the paedophile Jeffrey mm. uh, Jeffrey Epstein. Yes, the other problem I suppose for Andrew is that if he doesn't go to America, the onus uh, of proof will probably be on him because it's a civil suit. It's not the same. You don't need as much evidence, do you, in order to win that case as you would in a criminal case. So it's more than likely uh, that they would take her word for it in in his absence. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, uh, but the longer it goes on, the longer you do not have the Duke of York explaining himself because there is no doubt that he was friends with the convicted pedophile um jeffrey epstein there is no doubt that he went to see epstein once he came out of prison yeah. there is clearly no doubt that he knew this girl at all he is maintaining that he never set, had sex with this girl right. but you still got to answer the questions because there's so much well they're saying they appear to have so much evidence and accusations that he did have sex with the, with this girl, even though he is denying it. And he's got to deny it officially yeah. now. And that's going to be interesting if he goes to a court and actually, you know, gives a, a proper account. Because it's not just about Vic, um, Virginia uh, Roberts. It's also about what he possibly knew was going on in that New York mm -hmm. mansion, in that island in the Caribbean. And also the allegation is uh, in, in London. Yes. And, of course, she's seeking substantial damages, as uh, American lawsuits tend to do. And that could run into the millions, couldn't it? Well, it, well, it could. Um, I, I'm, and I'm not sure as well, is it, in a civil case, can you, can you get extradition to the states on it? I mean, it's one of these sort of... It's not a criminal case, so it's not it's not a case. I, where you I have don't to... think you can from my, no, I don't think from you my can knowledge either. So, of, of working there. But that doesn't necessarily mean the but, case can't go ahead without him. But another black mark against Andrew is I was reading in the uh, in one of the papers over the weekend that one of the lawyers in America that's involved in in helping him fight this case is a lawyer who um who backed uh, was defending uh, Harvey Weinstein. Oh, really? You know, I mean, I mean, what are these people doing? You know, you you surely you'd want to get hold of people to defend you that had no connection with any paedophiles yeah. or sex monsters or whatever you wanted to call them. And I, I just, I, I just cannot believe how the royal family must be feeling this morning, yes. knowing that this is this is a real big step. This is a real big turn up of the gas on this case. Yes, and and again, it, because of what we now know about the way the royal family has had to kind of operate recently, and the way it has operated with Meghan and Harry, um, it's not going to be possible really for the royal family not to react to this story and not to comment on it at some point. I mean, as far as you understand it, where is Andrew at the moment? 
Um, well, I, I think he's at Windsor Great Lodge, but he's due to be in Balmoral, you know, over the next week week or so. He's he's on the he's certainly on the guest list mm. uh, up at up at Balmoral. Um, but it, it's hard to believe how they can. Well, they can easily say nothing at the moment because you could just use the old oh, there's a court case going mm. on, and we don't want to jeopardise anything. Yeah. But at some time or another. You know, if Andrew just carries on burying his head in the sand, this case appears to be going ahead. Mm. And as we, there will be a result of some description. Uh, and if that result goes against Andrew, then clearly the royal family are going to be forced into saying something about this. Mm. Oh, they must do, surely, because, you know, in this day and age, we've seen far too many times now the royal family loses out if it remains silent because sure. you can't do that anymore. It's just not acceptable. No. No, it's not. And, you know, they're fighting the Prince Harry and and Meghan Markle in Montesina. But Mm. to be perfectly honest, yes, they're an irritant. There's no doubt about that. But this is serious Mm. stuff. This is you're talking about sex with an underage girl, a a member of the royal family. And it is, you know, devastating, absolutely devastating stuff. Yeah. I mean, when you. Well, let's face it, Charlie. I mean, if this was something that had happened in this country. Um, and, and she would have had to be under 16 for that to be the case because the law is slightly different. You know, this is a guy who would have been put on the sex offenders register if he was found guilty. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and But if you read the stuff this morning, that particularly in, 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 the, in the Daily Mail, their front page and everything else mm. this morning, but if you read every word of the, um, of the indictment, of the accusation, you know, it's got so many great lines in there. You know, it lists Roberts as the plaintiff and the defendant as Prince Andrew, Duke of York, a.k.a. Andrew Albert Christian Edward mm. as the defendant. I mean, come on, yeah. you know, this is... Well, she's also is... said that she feared death or physical injury to herself or another and other repercussions for disobeying Epstein, Maxwell and yes. Prince Andrew due to their powerful connections, wealth and authority. And we yeah. certainly know that Epstein uh, was an awful, ghastly individual who preyed on young women, who had some kind of bizarre sexual fetish about young girls, um, and who was, at the very least, um, uh, a, a, a paedophile, uh, if not worse. And the other thing is, as well, let's not forget, is that she is claiming that she was 17 when she came over to London, mm. uh, 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 where she claims that she had sex with Prince Andrew. That in itself is trafficking, yeah. because she was forced to come over here by Epstein. Yeah. And he used to lend out, is the phrase, is one of the phrases in, in, the, in, the, in the indictment, is he, that she was lent out to powerful people. You know, there's... And this is going to be, I mean, it's big news here, uh, Mike. Can you imagine what it must be like in America? Oh, I know. They must be salivating over all this. I know. Absolutely salivating. Shocking state of affairs. Well, listen, Charlie, as ever, thanks for talking to us. It's obviously going to run and run this story. It's going to be a huge problem for not only Prince Charles, but also for the Queen as well, who really doesn't need it. And it's a shocking state of affairs that he has not sorted this out, which he could have done. Um, he thought he could give an interview to Newsnight, uh, which was brilliantly booked uh, by somebody called Sam McAllister. Uh, she is no longer there anymore. But uh, Emily Maitlis took all the credit for it. There you go. That's sometimes what happens. But in the end, here's what goes on, right? He gave an interview to a Newsnight programme in which he basically said he'd never heard of this girl, didn't remember meeting her. She's now suing him, saying that they had sex and that she was underage and that therefore she now needs millions and millions and millions of dollars in compensation. Unbelievable stuff, it really is. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze... (sighs) 
relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, Ben Clapworthy is here. Very warm welcome once again to the studio. I take a couple of days off and the whole world seems to have fallen apart. I mean, I don't know what's going on. It's going to end soon, according to the climate change maniacs. You know, the, you can't get a test properly done when you come back from holiday. It's difficult to book places to go away on holiday. Um, thank you for joining us, by the way. Um, Not at all. But, Thanks for uh, having me. But how has this testing regime got so completely out of hand and shambolic? Well, to be honest, we've been warning that this is going to happen for some time. It was set up uh, back when very few people were travelling. Mm. Um, and everything that we knew and everything that it pointed towards was it becoming completely overwhelmed mm. when people actually started travelling again. Yes. And it seems that, once again, there's been a lack of joined-up thinking and the government giving people the green light to go to amber countries if double jabbed, yes. but still requiring them to take a day-two PCR test on their return in the UK. Yeah. People diligently paying for these tests. The average price is still about £93. And that's per head, isn't it? That's per head. They're so a booking... family of four, that's a lot of money. It's an awful lot of money. Um, it's more than flights, as a group of MPs have reported today, that actually the cost is five times higher, as you mm. say, than getting a flight in the first place. Mm. Um, but partic- uh, sorry, most pressingly is that people are booking these day two tests because they... They have to. They have to enter a booking reference on their uh, passenger locator form to come back to the UK. Yes. But actually, what's happening to these tests? Well, in reality, they're piling up outside drop boxes, outside pharmacies, yes. and nothing is happening to them. And Randox is one of the companies involved. There's pictures uh, in the papers the last couple of days. I mean, and I this may sound like quite an ignorant question, but I mean, is this not some kind of a, a danger for all sorts of reasons? It could be, a, you know, data breaches. People well, could be nicking them, taking them home. They might be infected with COVID. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, it's not very safe, it seems to me. <laughs> those, the first thing that I thought seeing the picture of those bins overflowing was exactly that. Yeah. Is that, A, I wouldn't want to go anywhere near it because right. it could be a sort of COVID, COVID hazard, s- hazard the super spreader. Yeah. Um, and secondly, is that exactly that. This is people's data. It's got right. their uh, personal information linked to these tests. Now, yes, it's not quite as explicit. Lots of them are just barcodes and mm. numbers and so on. But we know full well that, you know, data protection is, is, is paramount and yeah. shouldn't be things left in bins no. and also if this is the way the business and the system is working what what are the chances that they're getting the, the the testing wrong anyway that they're mixing up all the different samples i mean it doesn't look like they know what they're doing well the fact of the matter is is that these people that are taking these tests are doing it because that's what they're told they yeah. have to do but the reality of it that we know is that actually what are the chances of you getting followed up if yes mm. you order your day two test and then never actually deliver it to the post yeah. box in the first place i mean right um we and what know- happens to these people as well in the meantime Say, for example, on one of these piles of tests, it's yours and it never goes anywhere and you never get it back. What happens then? 
Well, you don't need, this is the whole point, you don't, if you're double jabbed, you don't need any of this information yourself anyway, because you're not required to quarantine. The Mm. only test that you really would want is if you're unvaccinated and you've paid to do the day two test release, which I did when I came back from Mexico, and I sat waiting for that day five test result to come back, because that's the one that lets you out of quarantine. So these people who have done the day two test aren't actually in in any way needing the result and will never get the result unless it's positive. Well, they will get the result either way. The private providers have to give them the result, but it's largely academic. I mean, if it's positive, then of course they need to go and get an NHS test. Right, but I mean, presumably they're the only ones that know then. It doesn't go to a central government source to say, oh, this person is tested positive. If it's tested positive, it's supposed to go for genomic sequencing, but there's another thing, (laughs) because it doesn't go for genomic right. sequencing. Data from NHS test and trace proves to us we know that it doesn't. The vast majority of positive cases, right. of which there are very few in travelers, right. first of all, it's important to stress that most people coming back are not coming back mm. uh, with positive cases of right. COVID. Those that are, the early data that I saw from NHS test and trace of the number of positive cases that were then sent for genomic sequencing was very low. Right. We must remember that the whole reason we were told this testing system was in place was so that every positive sequence could be genomically uh, sorry, every te- positive test could be genomically sequenced mm. so that new variants could be identified and that's not happening. So without wishing to encourage people to misuse the system, you could technically come back from holiday and not bother doing the day two test there is, and uh, wait and see whether anything happens. I mean, in theory, you could, yes, but you will have paid the money, so then all you're saving uh, okay. yourself doing is putting the nasty swab up your Yes, because you've got nose. to show that you've done booked that test before to you To get leave. into the country, yes. So, yeah. Um, I mean, I'll tell you what else I've been hearing over the course of the weekend is people not being sure precisely what um, tests to take before you go somewhere. If the country you're going to requires you to take, um, what do they call those, antigen tests, yep. right? it's not that clear where you get one of those from. No, um, it's not. And you again, you're not allowed to use the NHS for travel at right. all. So you have to find a private provider. Yes. Um, you want to find... Now, when you're going away, the, the odds are stacked even greater against you. You really want to go and find a clinic that will do it for you within the time frame. So you right. can sit with a person, look them in the and eye... And this is the thing you have to do sort of within 72 hours. Exactly. Is, yeah. Look them in the eye and wait for the piece of paper right. without leaving. Right. You don't want to be using a postal system before you no. travel because... As you know, the result may never turn up. You're right. stuck, you miss your flight, you miss your holiday, you mm. lose it. It's the same for coming home. Yeah. You have to present a negative lateral flow test, rapid antigen test at the UK border or a PCR test. If somebody asks you for it, obviously. If someone asks you for it, but you do have to have the certificate yeah. because if you don't have it, mm. some airlines won't let you on, they check it overseas, you may get checked to the UK border. Right. Again, you don't want to be in a situation where on the last day of your holiday you're running around trying to find a clinic that meets the standards for the UK border. It's crazy, isn't it? I mean, like, if, they, if you'd ask somebody to come up with a more complicated system, I don't think they could. I mean, this is about as complicated as it could be. This is about as complicated as it could be, and that's before you factor in the traffic light system, the changes, amber watch list, pluses, minuses. It's uh, the whole thing is an utter minefield. Mm. I get letters constantly from people asking, "What are the rules? Are it seventy-two hours? It forty-eight hours on testing? What's the um, what's the score if I've got have one jab, Mm. but my child's double? You know, it it, the whole system is and the jeopardy as well of say going away somewhere and then finding out that you've got a positive test before you come back. If you're with your family, are the family then required? 
required to, to quarantine with you? Or can you send them on all home and you stay there? It'll depend on the rules in the country that you're right. in. If, if the whole household bubble, so on, has to isolate. Most countries, if you've been sharing, maybe if you've had two hotel rooms, you're a bit safer in terms of right. if you're... You, but then you're probably sending your children well, off yeah, home on their own. Well, yeah, you can't do that. Um, it, I mean, yes, and, you know, in some regions of Spain, for example, the UK's most popular holiday mm. destination, it is government-approved quarantine. You go yes. into a, a hotel facility if you test positive for 14, 10 to 14 mm. days. So... There is that jeopardy, absolutely, that you come to go home and put it through your swab and it comes back positive. You could be anywhere yeah. and then you're stuck overseas. And presumably there. you've got to pay for that as well, right? Yes, you, your EHIC isn't designed to cover for those sorts of situations. That's the other thing, is insurance, isn't it? You know, does normal travel insurance, which most people say would have with a credit card, uh, would that cover you for anything related to COVID or should you get separate insurance for that? Um, there are now some good policies around. The, actually, the best source I've found for information on it, just because it's a, a minefield, mm. is is Witch's right. guide, although even theirs isn't perfect because some companies have ceased selling policies. But what you need to look for in insurance these days is being told to self-isolate before you go because you've been in contact with someone. Right. Remembering that if NHS tests and trace call you, it's a legal requirement. Right. Testing positive yourself, testing positive overseas, a member of your group testing positive overseas, the country suddenly going onto the red list new hotel quarantine. Mm. That's five things just off the top of my head yeah. before you would even get to what travel insurance was for in 2019, yes. which is when you fall ill overseas and I end know. up hospitalised. And then, and then you have to end up, as I've done a couple of times, on the phone for hours on end, trying to talk to somebody back home who can give you a, a, a number to uh, say that so you've that you got... you can show it to the hospital or the doctor mm -hmm. that you're seeing one of your kids, which is what happened to me. As it turned out, everything was fine, but I spent more time on the phone uh, in the hotel room, because which ended up costing quite a lot of money, mm -hmm. uh, because I was on hold for about 20 minutes, you know shocking final question for you ben um the uae apparently we now have the ability the reason i ask you is my daughter lives there and she wants to come to london she told me yesterday that she can come here but she has to quarantine for five days because she's not recognized the jabs that she has are not still not recognized by the uk government now they've recognized the us ones and the european ones is there any chance soon that they might recognize ones from there I mean, this is where the madness lies, that if you've had a jab that's approved by our regulator here, that the chances are it could have been made in exactly the same place, but being put yes. into well, your arm. Yes, well, it was it's AstraZeneca a, that she had. Exactly, so, you know, so it's made in exactly the same place. Probably made in Belgium. Put into her arm in Dubai, but yeah. not recognised. At the moment, no word on that. I mean, most apoplectic of the nations, I think, Canada, who have been excluded from the, U right. the US deal, because it's not a North America-wide deal. At the moment, I haven't heard anything on it, but it is the case it's mm. 10 days quarantine she can pay extra as i did as i said for that tester release for the five, day, the thing, five yeah. day one that's another 60 to 90 pounds mm. for that test um and i mean at the moment it's difficult to set you know double jabbed in uae a, yeah. a, a she's country, had covid you know um coming back she's and having only 30. to having to quarantine i mean it's it's madness and at the moment there's no seemingly way out of it it is it is a bonkers mm situation and, yeah. and there are a lot of people who are very upset that these rules are being you know they went right. they did what they were told to do they are british expats they were told to get jabbed in the country at which they live in not to start traveling obviously from the ua it would have been on the red list but not to start traveling around during mm. lockdowns to try and get jabs back in the uk and right. so on they did what they were told and now they're 
penalised for yeah. following the rules. Well, that's the trouble. Uh, I said that was the last question, but I've got one more for you. Um, as far as the sort of current list of amber, green, red, whatever, Grant Shapp said the other day, that's 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 it until the next time we make an announcement, but obviously we can't rule out making something changing uh, over the course of the next couple of weeks. Is there any countries that look as if they're rising or falling at any point? Um, not that I've been made aware of. I can't say I'm monitoring the numbers as closely as I was because, thankfully, with... Um, you know, so many of us now double jabs mm. and the amber list being so extensive, the opportunity to travel is far greater than yeah. it was um, for double jab people. It, the green list and amber list are effectively the same. Um, so it's not as pressing. So I haven't been monitoring it mm. as closely as I was before. Um, but everything that I see and hear is that they're desperate not to start to sort of add to the red list and particularly they want to know what the uh, exact numbers are on Mexico and the number of people mm. booking up hotel rooms here as well because yes. that was the biggest destination was to go for red people, wasn't it to go and people who were actually on a plane landed and discovered Fan that, that they now red that must be horrendous I mean they surely could come up with a system which says look if you're already on the way uh, or you're already there then it doesn't apply you would think so but that's not how it goes I mean it, you would think that there would be logic yeah uh, p- uh applied to it but it's not the Sadly, case at all not the case ben well listen thank you very much indeed for that uh ben clack with the update uh, on the travel business the independent republic of mike graham on talk radio now it's time to say a very good afternoon and a welcome back to the independent republic the home of common sense to professor carol sakura carol how are you very well thank you mike how very nice to have you back on the show because we haven't had you on for, for far too long i'm not quite sure who to blame for that but it's certainly not my fault um we should have had you on a long time before this but uh, how, how have you been how's business how are you keeping things are going well i'm in central london in my office in, in devonshire street and uh, it's really the train was actually crowded this morning when i come came in first thing mm. i came in early early and you know about 80% are wearing masks, even though they've been double vaccinated. Yeah. And uh, uh, the, there's still this atmosphere of fear around. And uh, I don't know how we're going to get rid of yes. it. We've all been conditioned like rats in a cage. Mm. I mean, I, I'm like you, always a keen observer of these things. I don't use the tube very often. When I do use it, uh, I'm, I would say it's about the same as that, 70 to 30 maybe people wearing masks. And I, took, I did take a bus last week, though, in which actually more people on the bus weren't wearing masks than, than were. So I saw that as a, a bit of a step forward because, of course, um, on the streets now I've noticed a change as well. As I was walking in this morning, I saw, I would say, something. I think I was adding, I was adding, it was about two-thirds to one-third of people actually not wearing them. So... You know, I, 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 you can do whatever you want as far as I'm concerned. I, I don't like to wear them. I don't find them comfortable. I find them very oppressive. Um, but if somebody wants to wear them, I'm not going to have a go at them. But I think more and more people are starting to have the kind of courage, in a way, to take them off. I think it really shows the fact that it was very easy to get into this mess when we started mm. on the 23rd of March last year. It's much more difficult to get out of it because we're all coming out of it in different phases. Yeah. I'm ho and i think you are too uh you know we just want to get it over with and uh, uh but a lot of people and there's an age bracket of course a lot of people are still isolating they're yeah. still terrified of what's going on yes worried about dying and uh, you know death is something that's going to come to all of us hopefully not too soon mm. and uh, uh you know there's no point worrying about it it's going to happen uh, and uh, that's not a good thing for a doctor to say in a consultation may i say but uh, uh, there's no doubt that uh, 
uh, people are still terrified and we've got to help them get out of it and, and begin to be part of normal society. Yes. And as you study the numbers, Professor, do you see that that could be the way out in terms of explaining to people? Because the worry I have is that every now and again, you'll read an article or you'll see a report on, on a TV station, uh, which will sort of try to make out that something's a lot worse than it actually is. Well, the doomsday guys have gone quiet. Have mm. you noticed that in the last two Well, they've, weeks? All, they've all moved on to the climate change uh, <laughs> conversation. They'll be on to Ebola fever next, you know. <laughs> exactly. It'll, it'll be all sorts of things. Yeah, don't worry about getting COVID because the world's going to end anyway. <laughs> but you're right. They've gone to climate change and so on. But there's no doubt they scared the pants off us all. Yeah? As uh, the deputy chief medical officer was always talking about yeah. pants. These guys know you how to scare people. And the predictions were really, even just three, four weeks ago, were really bad. They've gone quiet because the actuals and the predictions are so far apart. Mm. Yes. What's fantastic is that the number of hospital admissions just haven't risen above a 744 in the last week. So yes. this is great news. And it is a very, very low number of people compared to the numbers of people who are uh, supposedly testing positive and I'm still very uneasy about the amount of testing that's going on I mean clearly there's a lot less now because the schools are not open and so the school kids are not testing themselves yeah. as often but there's far too many people being tested isn't there? Uh, there is but that's because a committee we have a committee in our cancer operation you know and it's very difficult to persuade people we can actually reduce so I managed to persuade them to reduce to just once a week mm. testing everybody that's the whole staff uh, and uh, rather than twice a week because twice a week's a bit too much and having the, the nose job twice a week is uh, people some people really can't stand it mm. they really aversion to it and well, you can get saliva tests that do the same thing equivalent in saliva but um, you know it, it's it's again it's the psychological reminder that there's something serious going on mm. and you wait for the result and you get the result and then what do you do next it's uh, it's not an easy time no it's a very movable sort of i want to say feast but it's very far from a feast because i was talking to ben clapworthy who's the times travel uh, assistant travel editor and uh, you know this fiasco at the moment going on with the pcr testing of people coming back from abroad apparently uh, you may have seen the pictures of these pcr tests just piling up outside a pharmacy they're supposed to be a drop-off point nobody's collecting them um, nobody's sending them to central government you know so people aren't even getting the results of the PCR test that they've taken and who knows if and when they do finally get the result that it's even the right test that they've, they've measured I know and the costs are just phenomenal I mean it's cheaper yeah. to the plane tickets the cheapest bit of travel mm. in some places it's the cost of the PCR tests and uh, you know the actual cost of doing it's a fiver not not more than that I, I agree you have to add on the admin costs and the app and yeah. all these but you know many countries have a limit in uae in dubai i was there um, just after christmas the, uh, the 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 government allowed private providers to have a P to sell pcr tests but they control the maximum price of 15 pounds per test now here the cheapest is about 70 pounds that you can get and the most expensive is, is a stonking 500 pounds because they give you the result within a few hours and uh, timing is everything with this especially if you're leaving the country on a flight you want to get it you need to have the negative pcr so uh some regulation which we've heard from the health minister he's going to sort of put in place should have been put in place right at the beginning yes i think that's right and something that came up to me over the course of the weekend and which i discovered was in fact true 
when we talk about vaccine passports, there is actually a, a section uh, on the NHS guidelines for the vaccine passports to various venues, which actually says um, you may have an exemption from having this vaccine passport, which basically means that if you decide that you want to have an exemption, it doesn't have to be explained fully. You don't necessarily have to have a clinical reason, but the people who are operating, say, the system of checking to see whether you can go to an event or not, must then allow you into that event. And again, this is not something that the, the, the public have been told. It's exactly the same with the exemptions. You know, you see people with this little green badges. Yes. You can get them from Transport for London in London. You can get them from other places. All you have to do is declare yourself exempt and you're exempt. Um, can you imagine how silly that is? <laughs> I thought you'd have to go to the doctor. I thought, I'm going to get one of these in case the policeman stop me and say you've got to wear a mask. So I'll get one of these exemption things. And, you know, in the end, I'll just cut one out of the government website. And that's it. That's yeah. all it is. And that's all you've got to do. So this big argument, passport. this big argument about whether vaccine passports should be used domestically is a non-starter for me because one, I don't really think that a lot of venues will want to put, to put it into action anyway because it'd be too complicated. But two, if this is all you have to do to not produce one, then it doesn't matter whether you've been double jabbed, does it? Exactly. And what you say there, I mean, the cost of doing proper checks is phenomenal. I mean, you've got to have someone that can uh, really interpret, look for forgeries, look for fakes, look for copies. And this, you know, in a busy, noisy, alcohol fueled environment in a club somewhere, it's not it's just not possible. It's not a feasible strategy. And is it necessary? Well, if it was necessary, you're going to have to do it everywhere more than 10 or 15 people meet, which is a lot of places in Britain. Yes. So I think it's not possible. It's interesting the French are doing it and trying to do it, but there's huge rebellion against it. So we'll see how that ends up. Imagine going to get your, your, your little snifter and your cappuccino in the morning in the cafe with your newspaper and the guy saying on, on, in the boulevard and the guy says, uh, papers, papers, yes. papers. I see the French doing that. Yes, well, I've seen videos, actually, of that going on, but I've also heard um, a, a character who was in Paris, actually, talking uh, on a radio station the other day about how he was sitting in a cafe, drinking a glass of beer, watching uh, the, the crowds walking past him on Martre, and nobody had asked him for anything. He just walked into yeah. the place. And, of course, that will be what it's like here. There will be some places that become a little bit obsessive and they want to do the right thing, but there will be other places where they just won't bother. Absolutely. Exactly the same... In, in a few months back when they had the, the the QR code and you're meant to check in, people just flicked their phone on it and ignored it. And different places had different tightness mm. in the regulation. Yes, exactly right. And I'm seeing a, a report this morning, I don't know whether you've seen this, but it's coming out of New Zealand, health experts from three different uh, institutions writing in the BMJ Global Health. They're basically saying that global eradication of COVID-19 is more likely now than it was for polio, which is great news. It, it, it is. But of course, that maybe the COVID 2021 will come. I and mean, that's the trouble. Mm. We just got to face up to it. This is a disease like any other. We can't get rid of it totally. If we do get rid of COVID-19, something else may come along and there will be other diseases to replace it. I think the fear has been greatly exaggerated when you look at the consequences. You know, it's sad people yeah. have died, and there are young people that have died, but the vast majority of people are the same people that would have died of the flu in mm. the winter anyway. Yes. And so 
And we it's tend, well, also we tend not to be told what the circumstances are of the younger people who die. Because many times it will be as a result of something else that's going on, perhaps another underlying condition that they may have uh, suffered from. But what I would like to know, Professor, as well, um, is who, uh, because we now must have enough data to work out who it is that is getting more damaged by COVID than, and, and who is not. Because we all know people that have had it. I mean, I've been fortunate enough not to have it, but I know people who have had it quite badly of all ages. I know people that have, have had it quite mildly. I know people who um, have, have, I don't know anyone who's actually been in, been in hospital with it, but it seems there must be ways of working out exactly who it's affecting and why. I mean, the, the, the only common commonality is uh, body size and age. And age is by far and above mm. the biggest determinant of serious illness. Right. So average age of death with COVID is still 82.5, yeah. which is amazing, really. 82.5 is also the average age of death of most people in Britain. Yes. So it's, uh, you're not losing a lot of lives. And that's why the interruption to NHS work, where you've got a lot of other diseases mm. which can do something about in younger people is is very sad because you've lost a lot of those because of the way in which we've handled it yes the well, lack of capacity in the nhs well the lack of i say this to people all the time the lack of capacity in the nhs the way that the beds were spaced out uh, the way that doctors offices and uh, surgeries have been shut down i mean all of that is a result of, of the reaction to COVID rather than COVID itself. It's all the result of governments being overcautious, of NHS managers being overcautious. As a result, we're now told it could be as many as 16 million people who are waiting uh, for an operation by the time we get to December. I mean, it's unforgivable, really, isn't it? It's horrendous. We've never seen it before, this kind of number of people. I mean, the NHS is just undercapacitized all the time. Mm. You can tell that because if you phone up to get a GP appointment, it's often four or five weeks before you get it. And then to get a blood test can take two or three weeks, just a blood test. Mm. And the old days, the nurse would do it in yeah. the clinic. It came out of the GP surgery. But now you have to go to the lab and you have to book an appointment online, which is difficult for old people. They don't have mobile phones. Right. They don't necessarily, or if they have it, it's a sort of emergency use only. And they don't know how to use it. And so it's really difficult. They want to phone a nice kind voice and say, what do I do next? And there's no one to phone. So it's it's rather sad how we're progressing. Yes. And there doesn't seem to be anyone sort of getting to grips with it, really. I mean, nobody's kind of learning the lessons that we're always told people are supposed to be learning. Because you and I know very well, Professor, that every single winter you could find a headline from a newspaper that says the NHS is in crisis because it's in crisis every single winter. And no doubt it will be in crisis this winter again. And yet nobody seems to want to do anything about it. it it's a challenge mm. when pressures are here we shouldn't have them other countries don't have them in the same way obviously they do have a bit of them but they they are able to, to have the capacity to deal with it you know we've appointed a new uh, nhs chief executive um, amanda richard mm. and you know she comes from within and you know, I, I saw on the shortlist there was the Amazon, the UK Amazon director. That's the sort of thinking I think we need. We mm. need someone from outside the system in a very consumer-friendly, high-pressure consumer, uh, you know, goods or a hotel, hospitality, where you know you're only as good as your receipts, which mean you're in a competitive. Yeah. You can only get good receipts if you provide a good product you mean you can't have anybody running the public sector though professor who's come from the private sector yeah, yeah. <laughs> that would be anathema wouldn't it <laughs> it would i did no competition we've tried competition we called it something different we called 
you know, separate buyers and a purchaser, a purchaser provider split, we called it, and it's still there. Mm. But it's not really competitive. And the very fact that all the hospitals in West London, where I've worked at, from St. Mary's to Charing Cross, Hammersmith, mm. everything merged. Yeah. And so there's no competition if you've merged everything. It's like companies all yeah. merging. There's no, there's no choice. Yes, but one of the things I always wonder about, if I was running the NHS, I would be dictating to the pharma, pharmaceutical companies, not the other way around. I'd be going, look, we're so big that we're going to tell you how much we'll pay you for that particular drug. You're not going to tell us. But it doesn't seem to work like that. It's, you're right. And, and not just pharmaceuticals, equipment. Yeah. And the cost of the equipment. And remember all that PPE scandal. It's still sort of going on. Companies just buying up stuff and then selling it to the NHS. It, it, the, the problem is that people making the choice of purchasing are relatively lowly paid and have no incentive to make it better. They're not getting any slice of the action. Whereas private industry, if you can save a company 10% of its bill for widgets, uh, you'll be given credit, you'll yeah. be given promotion, you'll be made the widget chief of the company. <laughs> but that doesn't happen in the NHS. No. No, very sadly true. But listen, great to talk to you again, Professor. We'll have you on again soon, I'm sure. Professor Carol Sakura talking great sense as normal. Uh, Medical Director of Rutherford Cancer Centre's founding dean of the University of Buckingham Medical School as well. Um, If you're waiting uh, for some NHS treatment, we'd love to know the story because we need need your tales to keep us uh, aware and informed of exactly what is going on out there uh, in the big, wide world. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smartphone. Speaker, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid morning with Mike Graham, Talk Radio. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.